0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly delve into the world of EBM and also COVID. This episode we're recording on Wednesday the 16th of June and it's going to be a bumper one for you. With so many debates about how bad the pandemic is or has been for many countries, we'll discuss a new paper focusing on excess mortality. Away from COVID, Joe Ross is back again Uh, he's been getting worked up on Twitter about the FDA's decision to license a new drug for dementia and he's not the only one some people involved in the process having stepped down in protest and we'll delve into that as well I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen McDonald. Helen, welcome back to the pod.
1: Hi, Duncan. This is Helen McDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ.
0: And uh, as I said, we've got Joe Ross back as well. Hi again, Joe.
2: Hi, Duncan. This is Joe Ross, the US research editor for the BMJ. Nice to be back. Here.
0: And uh, you also have your academic placements at Yale and things as well. Don't forget about all the work that you do, Joe.
1: Don't
0: forget um, to make me sound important as well, Duncan. <laughs> uh, resting GP, is that still? <laughs> Sorry, that's, uh, Helen is very important. She does a, a, a lot of things. Um, so, Helen, um, one of the important things you do is give us an update on COVID. And there's been this really fascinating paper um, looking at excess mortality... And I remember back at the beginning of this, when we were talking um, about you know how big a problem COVID was, this is what I think we decided was the most important uh, measure.
1: Yeah, well, there were those kind of very doom and gloom death statistics that were sort of pouring out. Um, I think they sort of obviously varied according to which area of the world you were in, um, and it was always very hard to know um, what they what they meant. And I think we talked a long time ago with Carl Hennigan, um, about what the best death measure was. And I remember us saying quite early on that it was excess mortality. Um and that's why I thought it would be interesting to to revisit this con this um sorry, to revisit this concept um with the paper and really kind of see um what we can and can't do with those numbers, what we can now understand uh, knowing those numbers. So I think we should go to Joe for just a little mini rundown <laughs> of the paper in, yeah. in one minute. Data Guru. A bit like he's presenting in a very slick style at manuscript meeting. Um, and then um, I spoke with Naz, the paper's first author to understand a little bit more of the context for us. So let's come to Joe first.
2: Sure. So this is a really interesting paper that uses essentially mortality data from 29 member countries of the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to try to get a better sense of how this pandemic has impacted deaths across all these countries. And why this is particularly valuable to do is Right, you know, like Carl Hennigan had said, right? It's it's not just the reported numbers of deaths because, particularly early on in the pandemic, where we didn't have diagnostic tests for, uh, that were widespread, so that we didn't know who had COVID everywhere, but also because um, there's lots of people who get sick and die normally, and so trying to differentiate kind of normal deaths that any country would experience from what the pandemic sort of wrought on all of us. You have to look at the population, their age, their sex, you know, other characteristics about them and try to compare. So that's what this study did is it it used this mortality data estimating how many deaths, you know, each country would have experienced over this time period by comparing it to prior time periods and the age and the sex of the population and then compared that to the actual deaths reported by each country from COVID. And what they find is, you know, mil, you know, a million excess deaths in these twenty-nine countries beyond uh, what should have occurred um, after age standardization, et cetera, and that these there were more excess deaths in men than in women, um, and in certain countries like the United States, uh, they were much higher, whereas in other countries like New Zealand, they were actually lower. So very intriguing, and it helps us better understand uh, the impact of the pandemic on, across these populations.
1: I think we should hear from Naz now, um, and then and then we can pick out some more interesting things for our listeners.
0: Two
1: questions, Naz. The first one is: um, How comparable are the countries now when you look at excess mortality? Is it a valid thing to to sort of start saying, "Well, my country is has done better than your country," or? my government sort of made better decisions than your government. Um, how, how much is it okay to do that?
3: All right, yes, I have seen on Twitter, people are saying, well, you know, we didn't do that, but we did better than others. But well, every death is terrible. Death is just not a, a number. It affects the family, the society, everything. So just because I'm saying, well, well, we have only 10,000 excess deaths versus your country has 11,000 excess deaths, my country did better. I think that's a very insensible way of putting that data. All we could say probably, we didn't do as worse as your country. That's a very different way of putting it together. But excess mortality at least told us one thing. Probably we could have saved more lives. So comparing with another country and by saying we had less death and so we did well, to me, is, is, again, it's a very insensible way of doing it. There are so many other ways. There are so many differences between these countries, age structure, sex. And that's why we did compare each country on its own first. Do not compare what happened in other countries. What you have been doing over the last four or five years and how did you perform just in 2020 within the pandemic. I think that is, should be the main message for the, for the local authority. Then the question is, why did we do even international comparison? I think that's also important for international bodies to understand one particular thing. If we compare two countries with two different numbers of excess deaths, the next question is, is the excess death just because there is a difference in the age and sex structure in that population This is also a very important question. That's why we did standardize, so that it is comparable across the countries. But again, remember, standardized numbers are synthetic numbers. They don't exist in the world. That's just for comparison.
1: So what's a standardized number? You're sort of evening out the populations in some way to say, to make them more comparable to each other.
3: Right. We are saying let's assume these two countries has identical population structure in terms of age and sex. What would have been that death rate in in that scenario?
1: That's a very helpful clarification. And your paper includes many countries, but it's also notable that there are many more countries in the world uh, than there are in your paper. Um, How do you reflect on just the availability of this type of data globally in order for countries everywhere to have this kind of helpful feedback in order to shape their response to the pandemic or future um, public health issues?
3: So obviously as as a researcher we would love to have data from all over the world. That we didn't find that is itself a very strong message to the international community. It itself is a finding that we did not have robust data to produce really robust research outputs and that has a lot of things to do as a global health practitioner that we need to improve the local capacity so that they can also report these deaths data vital statistics data almost on a real-time basis that because as everyone is saying we are not free we are not safe until everybody is safe
1: So what do you reckon Joe having listened to Naz, do you think we can compare countries?
2: Well, I think you know, he makes a really e- excellent point that it's it's not about comparing countries. It's about understanding the lost opportunity each country had to do a better job of protecting its citizens. You know, any any excess death was, was an unnecessary death. And obviously, you know, we were all challenged by a new virus with you know, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowns. And of course, there's gonna be, you know, people were gonna be harmed by, you know, such a virulent, severe virus. But, you know, countries, some countries did better. And you can also see that some countries did better over time, right? In the sense like they were learning from one another, whereas others seemed to let their guard down. And I don't know, I don't think it's about comparison. It's more about just taking stock what, what what happened. Is it
0: because I take on board what he was saying about individual countries, but how about groups of countries which had different approaches? Can we compare them? Well, I, this, I, I guess I, that's I the value this is of a that.
2: Great question for you guys because you, you, in our in my world in the United States, all this, there's a lot of comparison between states, but we get lumped up as just the United States in, in, in data like this, right? But of course, you know, those of us in Connecticut or Massachusetts in the northeast of the United States that took the virus se- seemingly far more seriously. You know, put more pu- public health control measures in place, right? As opposed to you know other states where the the governors were like, we, you know, everyone should be able to be free. <laughs> uh, so we do that in our in our country, whereas you guys uh, are, you know, uh, many countries sim- like it's more like I don't know. So I mm. think you you guys want to be able to compare to each other.
1: <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it? When when countries are so. Um diverse in their local policies or maybe in their climate or their populations that a kind of aggregate number for the country almost doesn't make sense right right i guess we're lucky at least in the uk although there's an element of um devolution and some of the policies varied there was relative alignment on most things i don't think things happened wildly um differently um across across the area and i think um we're england and wales in in this particular study
2: whereas um by far united states is by far the largest country by land mass included in this right in terms of like the thinking about how i would be comparing within our country um right new zealand here is reported alone but new zealand is you know i don't even think it's bigger than state
0: of massachusetts it's interesting as well because you know obviously now we have these new variants with different sort of infectivity rates which are spreading differently in different countries um you know which we're all super interested in at the moment
1: I think you're hiding, actually, Duncan, a personal obsession of yours, <laughs> because in, because in the planning of these podcasts in the past, on at least I think two or three occasions, you've been gently prodding me, going, "What about variance? We could we could do something on uh, variance." I think people are very confused about variance, so I finally given in this week. <laughs> <laughs> Good, and, um, subtle work uh, so behind the scenes. We've done something about uh, variants of interest and variants of concern. So obviously back in January, I think, which was when you first raised this, Duncan, we were, we're hearing ahead a lot of the curve. Oh, yes. We should have taken your lead. You're right. Um, we were hearing a lot about the UK or Kent variant. And obviously now we're hearing much more about the India one. And even just the names themselves and what these terms mean is relatively confusing. And there is a nice WHO page. I'll We will include the link um, in the notes to the podcast on this Um because I think in the popular press, and at least in my mind as well, um, I think of these um, geographically. And, and the table in the, on the WHO page includes um, a column which is on geographical place where they emerge, so like UK or India. They also have this thing called a pango lineage. I've n- I don't really pretend to understand quite what that means, but that's the uncatchy number, like B117. Um, which is the UK one, or B16172, which is the India one. Um, and then you have maybe the less geographically stigmatizing label. So the UK one is called Alpha and the India one is called Delta. I, I think I we're going to show our tendencies here, but I prefer the names. I could go with Alpha or Delta or UK or, or India. And, and Joe likes the very confusing numbers with decimal points in them which i didn't read out the decimals i don't know if that's right or wrong joe <laughs> <laughs> how would you like them read out
2: i, I will adapt I, i'll follow your okay. lead because right. the truth is i can't keep any of them straight anyways
1: what's
0: pango lineage you can't uh, ask me that question
1: <laughs>
0: does joe know
2: i think it's just the genetic uh, like footprint or you know how, how they estimate the what the, the genetic structure of the, the virus is that that's my guess but
1: so then the other thing this page is very helpful for is explaining to you the difference between a variant of interest and a variant of concern um, which essentially amounts to Variant of uh, interest, you have some suspicion there and variant of concern, the evidence is really becoming clearer that this is bad. So if you're a variant of interest, you've basically got some mutations which scientists think have possible clinical indications. And you're getting cases or clusters um, that are being detected, um, possibly across multiple countries, or it is judged in some way worrisome by um, this WHO group called Virus Evolution Working Group, which sounds very interesting. Um, When you head into the being labelled a a variant of concern, you've basically got the addition of evidence that there is some degree of increased transmissibility, increased virulence, um, altering of the presentation of the condition or you've got decrease in the effectiveness of our measures against it be those social distancing measures um, diagnostics the drugs that are being used or um, prevention strategies such as vaccines Um, and we're seeing a huge number of papers exploring i think these uh these issues joe coming through you see them coming up on the preprints i'm sure um and we have some filtering through to the bmj looking at transmission and virulence and presentation and these differences um and we've got a couple of papers up on bmj.com um one of them's been up for a while the other one is newer and they both look at this alpha uk b117 variant whichever language you'd like to speak um and I thought it was interesting to look at how they were going about studying these variants um, and how that's feeding into the profile. So the first paper is from February 2020, and they looked at death at 28 days with the alpha versus the old wild type variant. Um, so you might think it sounds quite easy to go about investigating this, but it doesn't seem as easy um Sorry, but I don't think it is actually as easy as it sounds. And it was done using big data sets, linking them together, and they compared rates in people, rates of death, that is, in people who had community testing um, in Pillar 2 for SARS-CoV-2 and who were positive, and they matched them with people who had um, the uh, variant based on their age, ethnicity, um, deprivation, location in the country age within five years um, and specimen day to plus or minus one day. So you're trying to control for loads of things which might also um, alter death in effect. Um, And they discovered that the UK variant was more deadly at that point in time. It had a hazard ratio of 1.64. And um, in absolute terms, that meant something like an increase in death from 25 to 4.1 per thousand detected cases in the community. Then we got this other paper through, which was just published this week. Um, And the authors of that paper argued that knowing about death linked to the variant wasn't enough because death might actually increase um, if health services were very busy or becoming overwhelmed as a new variant kind of ripped through uh, a population. So knowing about admission to hospital was also um, an important piece of the puzzle, whether it's more or less important. I, I don't know. I guess it could you could argue it either way. But they essentially did very similar work controlling for very similar things to discover that the risk of hospitalisation with um, the UK Alpha B117 variant um, was also increased um, and uh that sort of completed this picture that um there was definitely sort of something going on there um so i think a useful thing to discuss in terms of studying um the variants, the work that's needed to think so carefully through those things that you match on what are the outcomes that are of most interest um joe you do that kind type of research this reading these papers must uh Light up some part of your brain <laughs> <laughs> well it,
2: it, the, I guess, having done that and, and read so many it's it's more intuitive i mean i I think this is a really interesting and important paper, right? I mean, I think there are a couple of major take home messages from it first, that when you, they were estimating the proportion of the infections that came from the variant, it was like five hundred and ninety thousand or so of the eight hundred and forty, so clearly. This new alpha variant has spread and spread widely, and while they demonstrate an increased risk of hospitalization, which is I think you know it's it's real it does I think is a good and useful reflection of the severity of the viral infection um, overall, it was about a one percentage point difference so four point seven percent of the people infected with the variant were hospitalized versus about three point five percent of those without. So I don't want people to run away sort of screaming and afraid like, oh, this is so, so much worse. It's, it, but it's worse, it's marginally worse. And of course, when you look at it by by age, you see that uh, you know, it, almost in every age group, I think it was over the age of 40 or so, you see a clearly different curve. Um, I guess it's actually age 30. You see a clearly different curve where, um, where there's an increased risk for hospitalization the longer uh, out after the test.
1: And I guess that becomes more important when the that type is then dominant and if there's there's a big wave of that going on, because although those differences are small between the variants, um, when you have a lot of people being infected, that can stack up to a lot more hospital admissions uh, for a- the country. A- absolutely.
2: and And if we're moving from this wild type variant to the alpha variant, and now we're sort of hearing the doom and gloom of the next variants, the Delta variant, which is supposed to be even more infectious, right, or more severe, uh, you can see how this each step, it's not, you know, each step is a little bit worse and a little bit worse and ha- the, the sort of what that's going to do to the healthcare system, the workforce of physicians, nurses and other clinicians that are trying to take care of these people who need this more intensive care, right? It, it, it It's challenging.
1: So I'm going to give you even more um joy uh joe now by saying that this kind of work um is obviously very important and what you need to do this type of work obviously are very large um data sets um which brings us onto one of the other things that we wanted to talk about this week which was uh gp records
0: that's right helen and that'll be coming up after this offer for talk evidence listeners
1: As a healthcare professional, keeping up with the latest evidence-based medicine is more important now than ever before with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why BMJ Best Practice is free to all NHS staff in England, Scotland, and Wales. With fast access to the latest clinical guidance anywhere, anytime, BMJ Best Practice will enable you to treat patients with confidence. As well as COVID-19 treatments, you can access over a thousand topics across 32 clinical specialities, with step-by-step guidance on diagnosis, prognosis, treatment and prevention, all structured around the patient consultation. To create your free account, visit bmj.com/ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales.
0: There is so much going on in the UK at the moment about um, what's happening to patients' data at the GPs, and when we were prepping for this, I was um, trying to put some questions together for you because there are a lot of questions around. Were you successful in finding <laughs> answers?
1: Well, I think we should fill Joe in because he is on the other side of the Atlantic and he might not be as familiar with what's going on over here. But um, I think he's you definitely can see it, with us. I'm smirking, I'm smirking. <laughs> Um so we can't measure the impacts of things like variants unless we've got um, some trustworthy science and we need um, that trustworthy science to make good policy decisions. And um, so we need good data to do that off the back of. Um, and these we need good quality, big routine care data sets to help us in terms of the science And research, but also in terms of the service planning. Because if you know that um, a lot of people are becoming infected, then you can know um, that a couple of weeks from now, you're going to have a problem with hospital admissions, for example. So it can help you as a health service plan for down the line. And of course, at the moment, a lot of the discussion around these bids big data sets is happening around COVID because that's what we're facing just now. But these principles, I think, apply to to any condition um, that that we might be dealing with. Um, and creating these big data sets seems best. Can we call it best? Um, where you have these health systems a bit like we have in the UK, where we have a big single health system that includes um, everybody and in England we have NHS Digital. Um, they exist already um, and they've been hitting the headlines, as Duncan said. Um, and a lot of these headlines have been quite negative around a a new um, project launch or, or relaunch um, around um, GP records and I went to a science and media centre briefing on the topic last week um, and I've been reading NHS digital site in a lot of uh, detail and reading some of the news stories and concerns that have been raised in other quarters and I, I think it's fair to say that there are quite um, wide ranging concerns being brought up some of them seem easier than others to address so I can give you a little run through if, if you want to hear
0: please do. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So one, one sort of tranche of concern um, that exists is around the confidentiality of the data. So I think there are some things which are obviously misconceptions. And one misconception has been that um, researchers who were accessing in NHS digital would be able to read your medical notes. And I think we can say that that is, is not true. You can't just go into somebody's medical record and have a good rummage around and read so you can see codes uh, via this so codes for diagnoses uh, a code to say that you've had a particular test done or have been referred to a particular service that kind of um, information and um, the information is depersonalized uh, which is somewhere along the road to total anonymization which means that things like your nhs number and what gp surgery you're at and um where you live and your date of birth that type of information has been removed um and replaced with codes in case anyone ever needs to go back i guess and and find out who you are um Another concern has been around the security of those data and particularly concerns about the data being, uh, I think, sort of conceptually in people's minds moved from the NHS to somewhere else, like maybe someone's computer so they can do this analysis. Um, And I think there's a sense that um, perhaps that, isn't necessary. And people have pointed to work that's been done during the pan- pandemic, particularly by the Open Safely project, where they've managed to analyse large amounts of data, as I understand it, without kind of moving it. And I think um, one thing that's on the table perhaps now is to look at whether um, the practice around where the data actually are can be improved. I think another key thing which isn't clear is... Um, how this project has evolved so prior to the pandemic it's not particularly clear what nhs digital offered in terms of gp records for people who are planning health services or doing research my sense is that things altered in the pandemic in some way um and at least one of the big platform trials recovery um i believe is getting some outcomes um from some kind of GP data um, and that's all been dealt with I said I think within the context of the trial and people have been consented appropriately to gather those outcomes. And then I think what is also not clear is what's happened or what is being proposed in this latest um, development um, which was going to be launched in July and has now been pushed back till September um, to be clear exactly what is new, improved or different about how Um, planners or researchers can access GP information yeah
0: I was going to say um, haven't we been accessing uh, GP data for research purposes in the UK for a long time
1: another kind of group of concerns I think is around who is accessing the data and why
0: yeah that's a big one
1: so I think I mean, there's some obvious things put up on the NHS digital site saying it's not being accessed for marketing purposes. This is all about research into health or health services and service provision. Um, But some concerns have related to, well, what if a pharmaceutical company wanted to access those data? And I think um, my my understanding um, of how of how this is going to work is that there are a group of people who are going to look at requests coming in um, to access the data and judge them. And my feeling is they're not going to judge it based on who you are, what type of organisation you are, whether you're a, a university, whether you're an NHS trust, whether you're in the UK, whether you're elsewhere in the world, whether you're commercial or not commercial, but it's about the question that's being asked. Um, and if that is... Um, Seen to be being improving health and services, then I guess they are more likely to say yes, and and if less so, uh, not. And I think it's, there are some examples where you can foresee circumstances where a pharmaceutical company might want to do some research within um uh, primary care uh, records, for example, looking for adverse effects of drugs which they have brought to the market. So, sort of pharmacovigilance or pharmacoepidemiology work uh, is one example that I've seen mentioned. Um,
2: it's it, it's really interesting, Helen. I mean, the um, you know p- data sources like this are an incredible public good, right? They're they're such an important societal resource for knowledge generation for surveillance for research for just for public health and but of course you know in order to do this everyone has to trust that you know their best interests are, are being served you know in the united states with our rugged individualism we can, <laughs> we can't even agree to provide care in uh, insurance coverage to everybody, <laughs> let alone to to pull all their data together. But you know, we over here are so envious of the ability of countries like yours and across Scandinavia that are able to link all these data sources together to do research in this way. But but there there has to be trust. I'm I'm reminded, I don't know if you're aware, about, you know, almost ten years ago at Yale, my group we launched a data sharing initiative working with companies to share their clinical trial data and you know to found that to get the trust from the companies to essentially allow us to make those decisions right there's a lot of questions like well who's going to access these data i think some of the same things are coming up and you know when we look at these requests we have and our, our our platform has a clever name. We call it the Yoda Project, the Yale Open Data Access Project. But like it's all about you know how can the sharing these data be used to advance science and promote you know improve public health and healthcare. How can it promote? How can we use this platform to pr- promote the responsible conduct of research? How can we ensure good stewardship of the data and importantly protect the right of the research participants? And in this case, with data like these. You want to protect the right of the citizens whose data are being contributed. And so there has to be clear steps like, yes, we are looking at the proposals to ensure that, the, you know, people who are using these data are using it for science and public health purposes. No, it's not going to be used for marketing. No, it's not going to be used to send you a flyer to go, you know, that you might be eligible for this drug and here's a coupon, right? Cause, cause that just <laughs> pisses everybody off.
0: Hmm. And what you said there about data partners, I think Joe is important. And, with this you can't help but feel that nhs digital has made a misstep perhaps with some of the people that have been involved in it
1: well i think what they've done is they they say on their website that they've consulted with a range of people and they mention some key ones like um, the RCGP, because this is about uh, GP data. Um, they've mentioned the BMA, the British Medical Association, and I think they've also engaged with a number of patient groups about it. But I think what's much less clear, which really gets back to what you were saying, Joe, is that it's not just about um, knowing that you have created something which is trustworthy, but it's about the population. And the clinicians who the population are going to go to to say, is this really okay? Also having that confidence that what is being presented is um, secure, that there are suitable um, measures around it and that they can understand the information um, that's being provided by NHS Digital. Because when I was digging around for this episode looking online, the major source of information that I found, and you'll have to forgive me NHS Digital if I have not found the best one, (laughs) we'll put it in the link, is there's some information on there which you can understand, but it's really mixed up with um, other information which is quite technical or sort of will take you off to very detailed technical documents um, and doesn't maybe answer the questions in a way that a member of the public might articulate it um, to patients. And I think now the the other issue in this is that there is perceived to be this deadline by which you have to decide as a patient if you want to be in or out. Um, And I think it's now emerging to be clear that that deadline um, is in some senses, um, it, it doesn't really exist, you can opt out at any time. But I think there is still some uncertainty or not a clear articulation of if you opt out after this particular date, whether your preceding data will already be sort of in the system and it's just any new data that you contribute after that point of time or whether you're sort of entirely expunged from the record and i, th- I think that's something that's causing some anxiety well
2: and i mean regardless of the answers to any of those questions the fact that you helen an educated physician medical journal editor <laughs> you know who understands all of these platforms and processes can't figure it out that's the problem right <laughs> mm. right that there isn't an easy website very accessible pointed to that provides information at a level that the broader population can understand including the patients and the GPs right so that mm. everyone can be assured that so that And I think like to be clear that
1: problem. those to be clear that those bodies I mean it's not even like every individual GP would have to understand this in detail but I think to know you know, your professional body as a, as a GP is the Royal College of General Practitioners. And I think just even people would find it reassuring to go on there and say RCGP have been consulted and we're happy. Um, I think all these like little things help to build your trust in the project. Whereas at the moment it says RCGP have been consulted, but you're not quite sure. Well, what did they say and um, how have you kind of dealt with those concerns and are they now happy? And sort of for each of the each of the bodies, you sort of want to see um, how those concerns have been have been dealt with, I guess.
0: Um, I mean, this is basic kind of medicine, isn't it? Consultation, you find out people's expectations and their concerns and and things, and talk them through that decision making process. In this, de- in this case, data, but you know.
1: Yeah. Well, anyway, what the the promise that I will make to to you both and to our listeners is that I, I now have what I think is quite a detailed list of issues. <laughs> and what I have embarked on this week is trying to find the people who can give us the answers to those questions. So um, if I've missed any issues, uh, do get in touch and let us know what they are. Um, and um, either on our next Talk Evidence episode or perhaps sooner if I get the answers before then, um, we will bring you um, as many um, answers as as I can find um, to help you and your patients.
0: Now, speaking of trust in the system, this takes us, I think, quite neatly onto what's happening with the approval of a new Alzheimer's drug by the FDA and uh, the fact that two people are on the involved in that process have uh, quit in protest at the decision. Uh, I don't know very much about this, so um, Joe, can you fill us in on the details?
2: Duncan, are you sure you want to get me started on this? Because for (laughs) the past 10 days, I've been walking around in a state of... Shock, anger, and bewilderment, and this—the same might happen to you if I explain this to you. At
1: least he's—he's he's kind of practiced his spiel on exactly what's—what's what's annoying him. So you should have it well honed for listeners now. It's not going to be like a kind of ill-defined rant.
2: <laughs> well, I'll try. <laughs> so, so la- last Monday, the FDA released its decision that it was going to a- approve uh, a drug for Alzheimer's disease called aducanumab aducanumab it's hard to pronounce it's a biologic drug that's infused in uh, hus- uh hospital outpatient departments or physician uh you know uh, clinics uh, monthly and it's intended to delay the progression of alzheimer's disease so no you know obviously alzheimer's disease is one of the worst diseases uh you know in affecting all of our societies particularly those that are aging because it's very hard to manage. There's no effective treatments. It requires a lot of care and support. And so, you know, any cure, of course, should be you know welcome and lauded with you know, you know by by the by the broader public. The problem, the problem is that um, this drug doesn't look like it works, and it's probably unsafe. So, you know, here's a bit of the background, which is, you know, the company uh, did you know their sort of early trials that suggested benefit then planned two large what we call pivotal clinical trials you know each of a thousand patients or more studying the drug um, in patients with early stage alzheimer disease that were was confirmed either by lumbar puncture test or more uh, commonly through pet scanning that they had amyloid deposits right and because that's the way this drug is intended to work by decreasing the amyloid burden in the brain so these these trials were run and both Kind of designed in parallel run in parallel were stopped by the data safety monitoring board or dsmb because of futility both looked at the clinical endpoints and s- said that there was no way there was going to be any benefit from continued treatment with this experimental therapy and so they stopped the trial um, data came in at, you know after the trials officially stopped recruiting you know there's some extra follow-ups data came in the company looked at it in collaboration with the FDA and they thought well maybe you know if you look at it just this way you know uh, in, in one of the trials the high dose to the placebo uh, maybe there's a benefit in this cognitive score it was not seen, this benefit was not seen in the other trial and the benefit that was seen in the tr- one trial uh, was of no clinical significance so the the the, the cognitive score that they are using the Standard threshold for clinical significance is a one or two point measure, that's what the trial was designed to show. And the, the difference was 0. 0.4 on this 18 point scale. So, even if there was a what statist- kind of
1: questions are on this cog, Joe? Oh, what, I don't, I don't have the making exact, the difference, I can
2: pull it up, but I, I don't have the exact details. But like, okay. it's just it's like the standard Alzheimer's disease cognitive score that's the scale that's used for, for, for drugs like this, right? So, so that. Very marginal difference, statistically significant but not clinically significant. The FDA, because of it's contentious, these trials were stopped, and they were looking at these data post hoc. Only one of the two trials showed any marginal benefit. They decided to take it to an advisory committee, right? Which which happens a lot. And um, you know, in general, uh, you know, the, the the advisory committee is composed of independent experts in Alzheimer's disease and clinical trials and you know, biostatistics, all that stuff. And they voted near unanimously that this drug, that there was no evidence to suggest benefit, 10 to 0 to 1. One person was uncertain and said, you should not approve the drug. And not only were they voting not to approve it because it was ineffective, but the drug had a clear safety signal, it, particularly in those at high, getting the high dose therapy where 40 percent of patients, you know, getting these monthly PET scans showed evidence of edema, cerebral edema or micro bleeding uh, Ten percent, so like 20, you know, a quarter of the people who had these had symptomatic problems, right? And these are people who are being monitored monthly. So you can imagine what's going to happen in the real world as, as people, uh, you know, get this drug. So they they vote no, and the you know, and usually when the when the advisory committee says no, the FDA follows their recommendations. We've done research that shows that the FDA action agrees with the advisory committee recommendation eighty percent of the time. And when it doesn't agree, it's usually that the FDA is more conservative. So, you know, the maybe the, the advisory committee says, you know what, you don't need a safety warning label on the drug and the FDA says, well, we respect your opinion, but we're gonna put that safety label on anyways. Or the advisory committee says, yeah, I think you should approve it for this new indication. And the FDA says, well, we respect that your decision, but we're not gonna do it. We're gonna ask them to do another study to be sure, right? So that's usually what happens in this case. The advisory committee near unanimously says no, and the FDA says, you know what, let's do it. And and here's where the sort of the mind boggling starts. So not only did they overrule their advisory committee, but in the process of considering the approval, they transitioned from what in our country, the traditional approval process to what's called an accelerated approval, which... Rely, allows them to rely on surrogate markers of benefit, as opposed to that cognitive scale, which is a measure of symptom or function or clinical outcomes for patients, right? They say, you know what, we're gonna approve it because um, the amyloid that we were measuring in the brain decreased. Now,
1: and that seems very weird because you have the clinical outcome and it's almost like you're going absolutely. backwards.
2: Absolutely, it's going backwards, it's ignoring that it didn't have a, a, a clinical outcome benefit. There's a great paper that was published in the BAMJ a couple of years ago that shows that amyloid, beta amyloid is a is not a good marker of cognitive benefit or decline or you know, measurement. It's not a good proxy for cognitive. And, and that's been shown all over. And in fact, um, at the advisory committee, the FDA said to the advisory committee, don't worry, we're not gonna use beta amyloid as a surrogate to approve this drug. And yet, yet that's what they did. They transitioned it to an accelerated approval allowing them to make the approval on the basis of the change in amyloid plaque instead of cognitive scores in the face of the cognitive scores not being any better and in the face of of the clear safety concerns. And then when an approval like that in the United States requires them to do a clinical trial to confirm benefit, even though we already know there's no clinical benefit. And the deadline they put on that trial was 2030. Nine, Nine years from now, the results of that trial have to be completed and reported to the FDA. So so my hair is coming out. My hair is coming out. But here's where it gets really even crazier. First, when they approved the drug, even though the only people who were studied were patients with early Alzheimer's disease and evidence of amyloid plaque, the label for the drug is anyone with Alzheimer's disease anyone could get clinical you know could be clinically indicated for treatment even people with severe disease right and remember this drug is not a cure it's not reversing the progression it only is intended to slow the progression (laughs) so here you have you you know to treat people with you know severe disease means to prolong them in the state of severe alzheimer's disease Um, which you know i don't think any of us would wish on any of our loved ones right so so that's complicated but then the real kicker is that the company you know, in the United States, we have a major drug pricing problem and companies get to put whatever price on it. And, and then, you know, in general, you know, we're, we're stuck paying for it. And they decided that the price of the drug would be $56,000 annually per patient. And this is, you know, monthly treatment over the rest of the patient's life. So people who started with early Alzheimer's disease could end up taking this treatment for 15, 20 years, right? And that, so that, that's a lot of money. So, Duncan, you shouldn't have asked me because I'm angry again. Because <laughs> this, th- so what why, this has done why? has is this broken happened, the yet? trust with you know that we you know so many people have with FDA. Sorry. But
1: why honey. why has this happened?
2: No, nobody knows. No nobody can really say why the FDA essentially took all of these unprecedented steps in unison. Like it's one thing for them to to like make. You know, to to switch from you know traditional to regular approval. It's one thing for them to, you know, to to change the label. It's one thing for them to ignore kind of their advisory committee. But they did everything. Like every sort of mm. red flag mm. went up along the way, and well, the I FDA has essentially just then, said, Joe. "We did this because patients are desperate for treatment." Oh,
1: that's that's the that's their justification.
0: Yeah. I mean, people are desperate for treatment, but effective treatment.
2: effective and safe treatment right and and that's what really worries me the most is that i'm worried that people are going to be harmed from this that that patients are going to get this drug they're going to have you know brain swelling or bleeding that's not going to be picked Mm. up because they're not going to get those scans and uh and you know people are going to get hurt
1: and do you think it will be used i mean within the alzheimer's um clinical community is it something that has been um, greeted in a way that you've just outlined it to us um, or do you think it's something that is just going to be there but no one's going to use it because once you share that information with a patient no one's going to want it
2: it's really interesting because the alzheimer's association you know patient advocacy groups particularly in the united states have a, a, a they're very vocal and they have a lot of influence and that the, the alzheimer's association has been very strongly promoting this product as a revolutionary advance. And that that if that message is what gets out to patients, it makes it really challenging. You know, if a patient comes into a physician's office and says, you know, I'm hearing about this drug, I'm getting mailers, you know, from the Alzheimer's Association about it, um, you know, I, I think I should try it. And to, to then turn as a physician and say, well, I know the FDA approved it, but here's why I don't, you know, I actually don't think it's effective and I actually worry that it's unsafe, right? It's it's hard to have that conv- that that kind of a conversation. You know, you want patients to trust the FDA's decision in evaluating the drug. Um, but what's already happened is that, you know, so many experts and so many actually people in the pharmaceutical industry have pushed back because this, this is going to undermine the broader general trust in the process and in every therapy, right? You know, when... When one thing comes through that catches a lot of attention and everyone's saying, you know, you shouldn't use it, it undermines the entire industry. And so um, I think lots lot the the, the, the the message that you're seeing in the newspapers, on Twitter, in the media is, you know, this was a terrible and awful decision. And perhaps uh, that's going to, you know, severely dampen enthusiasm for use of the drug. It's but, you know, only time will tell. This is going to continue to play out over the course of the year.
0: And uh, I've got a feeling you're going to be coming back and uh, telling us about it.
2: Oh, I'll come back and talk about it whenever you'll let me. Because I just want as many people to understand how problematic this is.
0: Well, if you want to hear Joe talk about that, then make sure you subscribe on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from and you will get us directly to your phone in a month's time when we're back with another talk evidence so until then it's goodbye from me
1: goodbye from me and
2: goodbye from me thanks for having me back
0: take care out there